Welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. So today we're going to take a little different approach and I'm going to be interviewed by our student intern. Sharif is a fourth year medical student in Ghana and he's going to flip the tables today and start asking me some questions, some of which maybe some of you have asked before. So take it away, Sharif. So I'm Sharif. I'm a medical student in Ghana and I assist Chase with post-production of the podcast. And I just want to say it's an honor to help make this special episode. All right, so Chase, nice to have you on the show today. You're on the other side of the microphone today. Yes, I am. Going to be interesting being on this side and being asked questions instead of asking you the questions. Yeah, it's going to be a refreshing take. So Chase is an MD-PhD student from St. James School of Medicine. Correct. Okay, he's also the founder and content creator of this podcast, the Medical Mnemonist podcast, as well as the One Minute Receptor podcast, for those who don't know that. It's really cool to have this experience where we put him in the hot seat for once and ask him what he thinks about how he would approach medical school if he had the chance to go back and do it all over again. This because as he's had many opportunities to create useful and valuable content and also hear from experts in advanced learning techniques from all over the world. So I just thought it would be cool to kind of explore how he synthesized all of this experience and how that would translate into what you would do if you had the chance to attempt medical school all over again. Is that okay with you? That sounds great. So many changes I would have made. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Chase, thanks for joining us on the show. Just want to know, how, how do you feel about this episode? I'm curious to see what happens here. I'm, I'm really glad to have you here because you've helped out so much with the production of this show so far, especially the past few months, taking on a lot of the editing and post-production roles for the shows and uh, really stepping up here and testing out your skills with being the interviewer. So I'm really curious to see where we go. Yeah, it's actually been a great experience for me. I've never done any audio editing, but then it's been a good opportunity to learn acquire new skills. And hopefully, skills will help me do I mean, great things in the future, hopefully. I think they will. Okay, so let's just get started. Mm-hmm. All right, so Chess, would you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So, like you mentioned, an MD, PhD student. I went to St. James Medical School, so that's a small college in the Caribbean. And I'm a U.S. citizen, so for those of you that didn't know, kind of that non-traditional Caribbean international medical graduate sort of situation. And my PhD work, which I almost finished everything except the dissertation at this point, was in educational psychology. So that is why I had such an interest in these topics sort of during medical school, but I didn't have time to really elaborate on a lot of this before or know how to put the topics I was studying for my master's in that degree into practice until you know the past year or so really learning through this podcast and through the guests that we've had on and all of that. So I do also have an MBA, which was sort of to help me with the production of the shows and the website and the book and all that stuff. I was hoping that that would make it a little bit easier to build this into something a little bit larger and reach more students and hopefully help you guys out on all the things that I had trouble with. And I know a lot of my fellow students did as well. So I guess we're going to talk about that today. Yeah, actually, like, you, you've been a great job to most of us, at least to me, because I discovered this podcast about a year ago, and I've been listening to it like religiously ever since. 
that's why I had the courage to reach out and offer to help. And it's been a wonderful experience so far. It looks like you've been around a lot. You've done, you've done it all, an MBA, a master's, a PhD, an MD. I mean, you, you've been a great helper. What, what was the motivation behind doing all this? <laughs> Lifelong learner. It's a mixed bag. So when I graduated from undergrad, I actually had a dual degree there as well, which most people said, don't do a dual degree. There's no point. And really there's not, but I kept switching back and forth between biology and psychology. I really wanted to know how the body worked and I really wanted to know how the mind worked. So I ended up getting both. And then right before I received my acceptance letter into med school, I had joined a master's program for educational psychology. And I was always looking into avenues of becoming a teacher. I wanted to learn how to become a teacher. I think it's a very fulfilling job and it's awesome that you get to learn as you're teaching. This podcast and everything that's happened the past year or so has been the best learning experience I've had because it's so interactive. You get to meet awesome people and you just have a lot of fun doing it. It's so much more intrinsically motivating than trying to you know, study out of a textbook or sit in a boring class lecture and all of that aspect of education that I didn't really like. So... <laughs> After I received my medical school acceptance letter, I continued to take my master's courses online, which was also beneficial because my school didn't actually qualify for financial aid. So it was a way to also gain some financial aid and help with living expenses and such while I was going to school. Still live very minimalistically, did before, still do afterwards, but that helped financially. The MBA really came across as I started to join Inside the Boards and when I started this podcast. And that was to gain a better business foundation because Inside the Boards was trying to build out their business. They invited me to be a part of the board. And then I started creating my own content because they were already working on their projects and we kind of had separate projects, but coinciding topics. So that's kind of a, a brief summation of, of all the educational aspects. And then you know, here we are today with, I think this will be over 50 episodes by the time this one releases, plus the second podcast, the uh, One Minute Preceptor podcast, the book that came out, which I've heard a lot of great reviews from the students that have purchased it. So I'm really happy about that. Hopefully we'll make another one too, maybe more depending on what kind of feedback we get on, you know, what materials you want to learn more. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at now. Well, that's impressive. We think an MD is it's enough work already to talk about adding a PhD, a master's, and an MBA. You've actually done a lot. You mentioned something about being a teacher. I think that's actually very important because we all know how medical school is, right? It's a lot of content. They expect you to know and learn a lot of content in a very small amount of time. And I don't know, they don't actually teach you how to learn these things. They just go in at the deep end and then expect you to like make your way out and then thrive. But more often than not, you find people actually getting overwhelmed and this actually contributes a lot to students feeling inadequate. And it basically doesn't bode well for students' well-being. So I think what you are doing with trying to get students with easier ways to approach medical school, more efficient ways to make sure they can learn their contents in the shortest possible time, is actually quite impressive. That's like, we thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I understand where some of the teachers are coming from. They don't know these techniques. They were never taught them, let alone how to teach them. So, unfortunately, that gets passed down or doesn't get passed down to the next generation of students. And sometimes they're not even great at the content they're trying to teach. So, by us trying to really teach the learning strategies that 
not only are going to be useful while you're going to school, but they're useful for residency, they're useful when you're a doctor and you're a lifetime learner as well, lifelong learner. They're useful for just your normal interactions, your day-to-day life. So learning how to learn, I think, is vitally important and vastly underappreciated. So hopefully we definitely bring some of that to light in the show and, and kind of guide people and maybe even any preceptors or physicians, instructors that listen to the show. Yes, that's true. Like that's where your other podcasts actually helps. The One Minute Preceptor podcast actually introduces more preceptors to this concept of learning how to learn and not just learning the material and uh, makes them recognize that um, it's just as important to know how to learn the content as it is learning the material itself. Yeah, I mean, the experiential learning during your clerkships, during your actual clinical rotations is vital to every student really gaining a firm grasp of the concepts in medicine. A lot of the stuff in the textbooks, I mean, some people are good at remembering that. I'm not, and a lot of students are not. So really, during the clinical experiences is when you can learn not only the reinforced material you learn, but comprehend it to a much deeper level. So when preceptors know more about learning techniques and emphasize the skills and the knowledge that they're passing on, then down the road, the students that they precept for are going to be stronger. They're going to be more knowledgeable. It's a complete domino effect. So it's better for the patients because it's better for the students because in the end, it's better for the, well, all of education, really. <laughs> okay, yeah, I agree. I agree. I very much agree with you. Because I think that's the main essence of this episode. We've had you interview a lot of experts in advanced learning techniques. But sometimes listening to it doesn't really translate into knowing how to apply these things. So students sometimes need a scaffold to build up on, a foundation to sort of build up on, so they can know how to use the techniques and apply them effectively instead of randomly applying them and then hurting themselves in the long run. So this episode is just to find out how you would have applied these techniques that you now know in medical school make your life much more easier. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It would have been so much easier. I follow the same kind of path that a lot of the students that I've heard back from, the ports that I get, the emails and social media contacts, the messages that I receive from you guys, the audience, are along the same lines. I didn't really know these before medical school. Okay, I was aware that they existed. I kind of knew some of it theoretically because I had been studying a little bit in my master's. That wasn't the focus of my master's program at the time, especially as it attributed to medical school. And even then, I really did most of my studying on the theory, not on the practice. And the practice is so much more difficult. Medicine is so complex. There are so many different topics and learning environments and scenarios where this works better for this student, but that works better for that student. And how to figure out how to you know, navigate this pathway, this complex learning environment is tricky. So I didn't really learn how to navigate it a little better until this past year, putting a lot of time into it, getting insights from some of the best experts out there, from you know, cognitive psychology, from mnemonics, from all of this. And I just really wish I had known how to do that back then, how to use them. And even some of them that I did try to implement, I wasn't doing it properly. So that's, that's really difficult to know at the time that you're doing it wrong. You're like, oh, I read about space repetition. This one, I'm spacing it out. I'm repeating this practice. That must be the right way. But I was doing it wrong a lot of the time. So it was a waste of time. But uh, I think a lot of that does come from some sort of mentorship. If no one teaches you how to do it, it's really hard and time consuming to find out on your own. 
And if your instructors don't know how to do it, then they're not going to be able to teach you. So, exactly. Uh, exactly. yeah. So hopefully resources like this can help with that. And I also feel there's the time factor to where you have so much material to cover and so little time, you don't really have time to go around searching for other techniques because you do that and you get left behind and then you now have to struggle with catching up. It's all a maze down there. So hopefully this episode is, provides a lot of value to all this. Agreed. All right. So I'd just like to ask, how was medical school like for you? If you can take us through that. Uh, it was an experience. I see the first semester I was there. So when I attended that school, my graduating year, there's four semesters and there were four months each on the island and then came back to the US for a fifth semester. And then you start your clinical rotations after that. But my first semester on the island was a tiny little island and got hit by the hurricane. Can't remember the name of it at the moment, but it blew off the doors on the apartment that I was renting and knocked out the power and internet on the island for like a couple of weeks. The school was closed for a few days, but that was near the center of the island. So it did get the power back sooner than a lot of the outskirts of the island did. But it was definitely a, an interesting experience just coming to this you know, small, underdeveloped island and then having that happen right when you're getting to med school and you're starting to learn all the, <laughs> the quantity of <laughs> content that you have to learn. It's just a lot of stress all at once. And then there was the aspect of a lot of social isolation because you know you don't really have any connections there. You can try to make some friends there and some people are much better at that than I am, very introverted. And I didn't have my family, didn't have my friends there. And school was very stressful. Sometimes you just, a lot of students did what I did and you go home and kind of lock yourself in your room until the next day, until class starts and you're studying the whole time, trying to keep up with all the material. So all in all, it was just very stressful. Uh, you get worn out, you get burnt out very quickly, I think, in that type of environment. And when you're not prepared for it, not expecting all of those things to, to go awry all at once. Yeah, so that was quite unfortunate for you to have experienced that hurricane. Yeah, it was definitely interesting. It wasn't the last one to hit the island, but it was the biggest one in my stay there anyway, I believe. So, uh, I was going to try Campbell at the end of the episode by asking you the same few questions you ask guests on the one minute preceptor. I think this pretty much answers the first one about the scariest thing you experienced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that might work. Um, let's see. The question I usually use on season one, I'm actually switching it up for season two. So it's going to be a different question now. But yeah, what's the funniest or scariest thing you've seen in like a medical environment? I guess med school does count. Yeah, that was probably a little scarier than a lot of the stuff I saw in the clinic. So, well, you have definitely a story to tell in the future. Yeah. In your opinion, what do you think makes a good medical student? Let's kind of start off from there. I mean, there's a lot of qualities that can be said to be good about anyone, whether you be a medical student or not. But I think a few qualities that, at least to be like a successful medical student, you really need to be a little more open minded about trying new things. A lot of times we get stuck in the way we're used to doing things and we try to find this comfort level, this routine. And it makes sense because it helps mitigate some of the other stresses because so much of the rest of our life is going haywire. It's very chaotic. But especially when it comes to your studies, we quickly can find that our old study materials and methods in undergrad don't really work for med school. It's hard to change. And I've mentioned this in several episodes at this point. It's difficult to try new things or even to know what to try. So I think being able to recognize when you're starting to struggle 
but also knowing where to go to find new resources or who you can go to that can give you proper advice. Not just a friend that'll give you advice, but someone that can really mentor you quickly and efficiently so you don't waste too much time and fall behind in class. So that kind of also falls in line or segues into when to seek mentorship, I think is a a strong quality for a good student. Some schools have a lot of mentorship opportunities within the school. They have counselors, they have tutors, but sometimes those aren't the most qualified for the particular problem that you're having, or you just don't really mesh with them in a way that's beneficial to you as a learner. So finding proper mentorship, I think, is really a skill to develop and something to not be afraid of trying. It's never you know, shameful to ask for help. In fact, asking for help is <laughs> one of the best things you can do to make sure you don't fall even further behind because it's just perpetual at that point. You're never going to catch up if you keep going on too far, too long without figuring out some way to, to jump back into place, you know? And then probably a third one would be to really consider all aspects of healthcare when you are in medical school, especially like the first year, getting acclimated to things. I know there's still this huge disconnect between the lecture hall and clinical practice, and it's an ongoing debate. And that's part of the reason why the USMLE Step 1 now is is switching to pass-fail, but that's probably one of the reasons is we're focusing too much on the class time and studying for the test, which you had to back then. So it wasn't improper to do so. It was just the people that set our guidelines didn't really have a good end target in mind. So if we focus now more on you know leadership and working with others and all of these types of skills that'll help our patients later on, that'll disseminate information better on to our fellow coworkers, that'll make the environment in healthcare, but also in academia beforehand, easier to navigate. I think those are going to be very powerful going forward. Sometimes it's not that easy to find help. As you know, medical school is a pretty competitive environment where everyone is trying to survive and some a few people at the top are trying to come out first of their class. And so as I said, there's not really a lot of resources to help medical students learn, like know how to learn. So the few that are aware sometimes keep the information to themselves because, I mean, it's competitive. Everyone wants to come out on top. So sometimes it's not that easy to find these resources because people don't share. It's quite a big problem over here. I'm not sure how, how prevalent it is in your area. It's quite a big problem over here, down here in Ghana, because you'd find a lot of students who have access to certain resources and materials that would be helpful to every student. But then because they want to come out like on top, they don't share, they hold it onto themselves so they sort of have an advantage about the rest of the students. Is there something similar in your part of the world? And how would that affect your definition of a good medical school? It's a very complicated question and situation. I do know that there's a lot of competitiveness in all medical schools. And to the degree that it differs locally versus Caribbean schools versus foreign medical schools, I don't have too much experience in in the foreign medical aspect. I know it's fairly competitive in international medical schools, which generally Canada and Caribbeans are kind of counted as that more so than foreign medical schools. The competitiveness of students, it it makes sense because there's usually limited spaces available. And the only thing you can really do is stay away from people that block you out, that make your life more difficult. And try to find those that you can really connect with, that you can grow with. Find a study partner or a study group if you can. And this isn't something that I did because I was so antisocial. 
and really regretted it afterwards, but find people that you study with very well. And these could be completely different than the people you hang out with outside of your studies, and that's probably better too, so you don't get too distracted. But find those that do care about you succeeding and that you honestly care about them succeeding. And that'll just be a very mutualistic and beneficial relationship that you can try to, to form. And, and that bond can last later on too throughout your entire careers. But on top of that, I really think that too many people have for a long time worried too much about content. So we always try to find what's the best QBank, what's the best video, what is the best resource for this content. And especially early on, if you're a pre-med, if you're thinking about going into med school, the sooner you can start learning these how to learn skills instead of what to learn, it's going to benefit you much, much greater. You're going to learn the material faster once you get to it. You won't have to worry about the best content because you'll be able to absorb whatever content that comes across you better. It's better to take one resource, let's say one QBank, that's okay. Maybe you'd give it like a, a C on a grading scale and memorize everything in there very well. Then get three of them that you would grade as an A resource, but you're only remembering bits and pieces of each one. And a lot of times it's the same bits and pieces from each of those resources you're remembering. So you think you're remembering a lot. You think you're memorizing a lot of content, but really it's the same categories of material in different resources. So it's a fallacy. Ignore those that are trying to be hyper-competitive. Stay away from them. They're probably negative. They probably have some other reasons besides just the competitiveness that's making them act a certain way or block you out of trying to make you successful. In the end, is usually room for all of us. We might not find the most desired place, like the number one slot that we're going for, but we can all succeed and get in there somewhere. And then you can always change that later, whether that be switching a specialty later on or starting off in research or going to research or going to education instead of being a clinical practitioner. There's so many more avenues that you can go with the degree and with the knowledge you gain and with the skills you're developing too. That worrying about you know being hyper-competitive is just, it's a waste of your time. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I sort of told myself that as long as the doctor-to-patient ratio in the world isn't one-to-one, there's always going to be a place for every medical student. With them. And there's really no need to, to not help your colleagues to make it. So there's really no need to be that hyper-competitive. But, I mean, it's very easy to get drawn into this because everyone wants to get into their top choice. I understand where they come from, but it's not the safest habit. Yeah, I, I think the top choice is probably people focus too much on it. I'd say that could be different for residency, obviously, depending on what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go. But it's like picking the top school. Does it matter if you go to a number one school or a number three or a number five? Not really. Does it matter if you go to a number 10 versus number 20? In that aspect, comparing those two, not really. You know, you're either in the top couple or you're the other 99% of us. <laughs> so it's... At that point, it's all, it's all the same thing. And you're really just adding extra stress that you don't need to worry about. You're going to be happy wherever you go. There's constantly a physician shortage here. And I'm sure there is even more so in much of the rest of the world. So there's always going to be a need. There's always going to be alternatives as well. I think there's a whole section in the book that, small section, but we discuss how just having your MD opens up so many other non-clinical careers there's entire podcasts about that. There's always options. So focus on getting to the next step and that's getting your degree. And then you can worry about everything else after that. Yeah, that's true. 
do you think are these competitiveness and stresses and things do you think this contributes to i know this warrants a much deeper dive into the topic but then just as a, a brief opinion do you think this contributes to the high levels of physician burnout we are observing <laughs> i know that a lot of studies recently have been pointing to burnout starting in medical school and then it's just continuing on into actual physician careers and that Makes sense from my experience as well. I know I burnt out several times in the past few years. And, you know, the competitiveness, I'm sure, is a part of it. Some of it is how our social networks are, how strong they are. That's definitely something you can do to help prevent burnout. A lot of it is the education system itself. How do I put it? It's not really designed in a way that's meant to be extremely beneficial for learning principles. It's meant to disseminate as much information as possible to students and let them figure out how to go about actually remembering it, how to incorporate it. But it's a combination of all these factors. And I think the the educational environment is a huge part of it, the social environment that you have within the school, but also personally with your family and friends. You know, those are huge, huge factors that go into burnout. And there's a lot of ongoing research, there's a lot of conflicting research. So I can just say from personal experience, those seem pretty accurate to me. And in case you haven't heard, our tickets for the Online Medical Education Summit are now live. So go to freemeded.org slash O-M-E-S for your free ticket. Join our physician speakers, education experts, and medical advisors giving you the tips you need to survive medical school. Plus, join the best medical education content creators at their booths. Ask them questions and maybe even receive discounts. And in the spirit of Free Med Ed, this event is free. So get your free ticket for our May 30th event now at freemeded.org slash O-M-E-S for the Online Medical Education Summit. We hope to see you there. You are definitely going to hit a book and you would definitely need someone to be there for you when you do. And you know you can always count on your family and friends, so it's definitely better to have them close by. That's actually very true. Yep. Okay, so I feel like let's start getting into the main reason we are here. Can you describe to us how a normal day in your medical school was? Sure. Let's let's see if I can remember. (laughs) It was such a a traumatic point. I think uh, I blocked out a lot of medical school at this point, (laughs) the the first year or so. So it usually started waking up at probably 6.37 and making some breakfast, listening to a podcast or some sort of video that I found on YouTube to explain a topic that was going to be discussed that day or that was just discussed the previous day. Trying to watch something, listen to something educational as I'm cooking breakfast, as I'm preparing to go to school. And this sort of passive learning, I did a lot. And so it wasn't until more recently, you know, around the time of starting the show that I realized how much I was doing it. And passive learning is great to get information across quickly, but it also is the first to fade if you don't implement some other strategy on top of it. But we'll come back to that later. So then after I was ready, I would initially, I think the first couple months, first year or so, I had a bicycle. So I rode that to class every day, which was great. So I could get a little bit of a workout, get the blood pumping before class, help me focus a little bit more. And then basically sit there for you know six, seven hours a day listening to lectures, some of which did not seem to make a whole lot of sense. Some of which the professors didn't seem to know a lot about the topic they're discussing. Usually try to fit in a meditation during lunch period since we did have like a a quiet room in the library. So it was mostly me meditating and some people praying and that was was about that. Go home, 
prepare dinner, listening to something again, some sort of educational material, and then review the notes, maybe watch another video before bed, and then go to bed. And that was definitely how I did the first couple of months. And it changed a little bit, probably around month six and on, because I started adding more flashcards and question banks and stuff into my rotation. Like I said, a lot of the first couple of months were passive learning, the topics that I was covering while at home anyway. And I was doing a lot of rereading chapters and reviewing the notes that I'd written in class. And these are all the things that you don't want to do. These are things I now preach very heavily. Don't do. It's what all the cognitive psychology shows. Don't do because it doesn't benefit you. And then the question banks, I didn't really set up my flashcards properly and I wasn't doing question banks in a proper way where I was monitoring what types of material I was getting wrong. I wasn't focusing on my weak points. Everyone says focus on your weak points, but how to actually implement that very vague sentence is a little bit difficult to comprehend. So, you know, I got through classes all right. I wasn't an exceptional student, but I also wasn't driving myself insane like a lot of the other students seemed to be and still maintaining my GPA to a fair amount. I'd say compared to the effort some of my classmates were putting in I was probably scoring a little bit higher for the same amount of effort. So it wasn't terrible, but I also found that I just wasn't retaining a lot of the information for long. So this now in retrospect being quite evident as to why. And yeah, I'd say that's that's about how my first year, year and a half of med school went. And I passed all my classes and got to come back to the U.S. and start clinical rotations. But it wasn't until studying for step one that I really realized how many knowledge gaps I had, how much difficulty I was having in remembering. And even at that point, doing you know dedicated study period, going over tens to hundreds of questions within a day or a week or whatever the schedule was at that point in time, it wasn't sticking. I had just forgotten so much already from lack of proper repetition beforehand when it was vital that I kind of had to start from scratch. I had to start relearning so much material. It didn't stick the first time. I'd remember it for the test and then, you know, kind of forget a lot of it. So those are some of the very important mistakes that I made during my first year or two. Yeah, it's actually very true. Passive learning is, um, it's what we've all been doing since, I think it's what we instinctually gravitate towards. Because it's very easy to Get it lost you into a false sense of security. It's like I've read the material five times, so I'm pretty sure I remember it. But then you end up writing the test and you realize you actually don't remember it as well as you thought. And who knows, maybe like a few weeks later, you actually forget everything. But it's actually very exactly good. recognition memory is terrible. Very recognition good. tells you you know so much, but it, <laughs> at the same time, you don't actually know anything. Exactly. Did your schedule change? significantly on weekends and on holidays or was pretty much the same? I would say that it was a little bit more, well, no, it was probably a lot more lax on the weekends. If I didn't have a test coming up very soon, then I probably was a little more lax. I think when I first went to the island, like the first semester or two, I was more strict on my rotations and and my schedule, my routine, but it started to become more lax with time and Towards the end of my time there, I had roommates, so we would go and do things on the weekends a lot. We would go out to the beach or go eat somewhere or just hang out and have a movie night, which is good. You do need breaks. It's just that I wasn't 
also implementing better study strategies for during the week so that I could have used more time on the weekend maybe. And then holidays was mostly time by myself. I didn't have any friends the first you know, a couple months on the island and my family was, you know, not living there. No one was able to come visit me on this little remote place. So it was a lot of holidays and, and birthdays and stuff that's just really by myself. And I think that social isolation I, I brought up before is a huge killer and definitely led to some of the burnout that I felt there. Yeah, Madagascar is a time where you actually need a lot of friends, so it's very true. It's hard moving from your home where you've been all your life and then going to a small island all alone. The independence is great, but then no one tells you about how lonely and tough it's going to be, so it, it's, it's hard to adjust. It's actually very yeah. hard. Okay, uh, now we have an idea of how your schedule was. You've been hosting a lot of advanced learning experts on the show. You've picked up a lot of their techniques, you should have a lot of knowledge about, at least theoretical knowledge about the advanced learning techniques they preach. How would you synthesize this and which ones would you say are your favorites and which ones do you wish you had known when you were in medical school? Uh, all of them. <laughs> everything, that, everything we cover on the show. Um, I mean, that's why I have so much fun with creating the show and with interviewing the guests is because this is stuff that's vitally important to you, but it's also so interesting for me. It's what I didn't know before. I mean, that's kind of what Read This Before Medical School was. The the creation of it was to put together all of the information that I would have liked to know beforehand. But more specifically, like some of the evidence-based strategies that we've been discussing since the early days of the show, rehearsal practice, space repetition, dual encoding to don't use as much interleaving because it's really hard to schedule that for our practice. But sometimes QBanks will do that where they switch up, you know, instead of having all of the questions you're going over be anatomy today and all of it be micro tomorrow, the QBanks can switch in random topics by discipline or by subject. So it kind of does that. And we don't really know like the optimum way to interleave material. So, I mean, worrying about it is not useful. As long as you're getting a mixture of a couple of things within a day, that's the best. And then obviously space repetition, which is rehearsal practice, plus the spacing effect. The spacing, we usually, most students anyway, seem to just use Anki or something similar. I know Quizlet's been updating their flashcards lately, so we'll see how that turns out. There's always competitors, but for the most part, students are still using Anki just because it's simple and there's a lot of you know material out there, tutorials you could use for flashcard material then flashcards in general are one of the best forms of rehearsal. That or talking to a friend without looking at your notes and teaching them something or your spouse or your animal or your plant. Just rehearse, recall as much information as you can on a subject. And when you get stuck, well, now you know that that's something you have to learn better. That's something that maybe you can make another card about later on and test yourself again. So all of those types of evidence-based studies are extremely useful and Again, I thought I was using them, but I wasn't using them properly. So hopefully, I've been planning on doing this for a few months now, but I have so much content that's been coming out, I haven't had time to. I'm trying to make some YouTube videos that everyone can watch that'll explain a couple of different flashcard techniques, a couple of different types of flashcards, and the pros and cons of each one, and really walk you through it. So hopefully that'll help some students that might be having similar questions or might be making them incorrectly like I did. And there's a lot of you know other material, but... A lot of it is based on students or even instructor interpretation and how they feel about material without actually 
necessarily being backed by evidence, which is something that we have to do sometimes. There's not evidence for everything. But the other aspect would definitely be the mnemonics creation, because I think I've mentioned in a couple other shows where I've been guest on is I first heard about some of the mnemonic techniques before medical school, but only barely. I just had a passing familiarity with it. I think I tried some a few times, remembered a couple of numbers, like a phone number or something for a couple of weeks. But after that, I got stuck and I didn't know where to turn. And a lot of the YouTube videos and other materials that were around at the time, and this is probably 2013, early 2014, there wasn't much that I could find at the time or I didn't even know where to look to answer those specific questions I had, at least not without you know spending hundreds of dollars on an instructor or a course. So now that I've had a lot more time to really explore all of the different aspects that are covered by other mnemonics instructors and interviewed most of the big companies out there and how they utilize them, know much more about the cognitive psychology and how creating these different mnemonics yourself really influence the way you remember the material in the long run. And just a lot more about the techniques in general. I feel like I've learned so much on how to specifically attribute the mnemonic memory techniques, these strong visual mnemonic techniques to medical studies. So if I had any of that knowledge back then, school would have been so much easier. I probably would have been able to just spend three or four hours a day instead of sometimes eight or 12 studying and would have retained more information than when I was studying eight or 12 hours a day because the repetition when used properly, the rehearsal when used properly, and the mnemonics to help back up, especially those tricky things that you you just can't seem to get through repetition. Well, that'll save you so much time in the long run with having to or not having to rehearse this material over and over again watch a video again, review your notes, reread a textbook. It's just so much beneficial down the road, even if it takes more time to create initially. This repetition is actually a godsend. Like, I have no idea why the concept didn't come up earlier and it's just now coming up, or maybe I just don't know when it came up. But it's one of the most useful things that students can actually learn to study because it saves so It might sound counterintuitive at first, though. Why would you, why would you relearn them something? multiple times save you more time, but then it actually saves you more time because I think it's called the relearning effect where it takes you a shorter amount of time to learn something you've already learned. So you end up using a significantly shorter amount of time to study what you are having problems with, and it actually consolidates the memory much better. So special teaching is definitely a plus. Rehearsal, another good sense. This has been around a while. I heard about it in the Feynman Technique where you'd have to explain what you've learned to someone. And then when you have a problem, you then go and reread it and then explain it again until you can explain it for this. So these are all actually good techniques. And I feel like every student, not necessarily just medical students, but every student should be using these. So now you know of these techniques, how would you have incorporated them into your study within medical school? Just walk us through your day and the changes you would have made, the techniques you would have used, and then the reasons you would have used those techniques. Sure. So, and of course, I can't really explain the exact every aspect of the technique through this. And that's kind of where the theory versus practice comes in. So, if you're listening to this podcast and you think, oh, that's really cool, you're getting the theory, but you have to implement it yourself and really see how it works for you, for your learning style, and with the material you're on right now. 
in order to implement the practice. But in general, I think the way I would do it is similar to the way I've been studying more recently and still implementing these techniques into a broader spectrum of material than just medical studies. In the morning, I tried to go over a series of questions, a series of flashcards generally that are going to act as a first review for that morning and really get my brain sort of flowing thinking about the concepts of the day or of the topic that I was recently studying. Then I would probably do whatever I could to not actually go to class. <laughs> uh, some students hate that idea. Some students love it. If you like going to class, if you learn a lot from it, do it by all means. Don't stop just because I'm saying that I didn't like to go to class, but I didn't learn a lot in class. And in fact, what I would usually do is I'd spend a couple of days in the first week or two that I would listen to the instructor. And if I didn't feel like I was gaining anything, then I would either stop going if I could, or I would start using other resources in class because we did have an attendance policy. So I wasn't always allowed to miss as much as I wanted to. All those studies about attendance policies are, uh, I would say, flawed to say the least. But um, I would try to use that at-home study period. And there's plenty of third-party resources out there that can teach in a more complete and graphically representative method than a lot of instructors are able to. And that's not just the instructors, you know, it's not their fault or anything. They might have limited resources or they're doing other things with their day. They don't have time to set up, let's say, a very large presentation video, you know, produced presentation, like something you might find on Coursera or something like that. And those graphic representations can be very beneficial. PowerPoints are stale and stagnant. They're okay. They're better than writing on a board just for the aspect that they're quicker. Uh, you can go through more material in class. But a lot of these traditional lecture-based learning methods are not very useful. And there's so much research out there right now saying that lecture-based learning is, for the most part, in most research, quite inferior to student-based learning. And that has to do with forcing students to be there at a certain time, teaching in a method that the instructor feels comfortable teaching where it's not necessarily the best way for a student to learn. But I digress a bit there. I could have a whole other podcast <laughs> or book on that topic. So I would stay at home and use resources that I found were better for me with the caveat that I know teaching methods are something we all feel that we're a visual learner or an audio learner or something like that. And just using that one method of learning is not beneficial, but I would implement several different modes. So I'd probably watch a movie and then I'd skim through a textbook that had to do with the video, um, whatever topic was just covered in that. And then I'd go do some questions on it to make sure that I remember the material. And anything I got wrong, I would then add into a flashcard deck and do that throughout the day. And then at night, I would probably do one more review of all the new cards because generally when you add a new card in your Anki deck, it's going to schedule it for that day if you set it up to do that. So that would basically act as your first repetition of the new material you covered. And then the next morning, do the same thing. In the morning, you're going over the flashcards, which again is going to act as your second repetition for that new material. And whatever repetition it is for any other material you've had you know, stacked up for days there. And this kind of follows the method that I've discussed a few times in past episodes, which is the 11311 method. The basic premise of that is, in general terms, I recommend you study the material and do your first repetition within about an hour of any new material you got within a day. So here that night repetition before going to bed would be like your first hour 
approximately, might be a few hours, but it's within the same day. And then you're going to think about the material as you sleep too. So it'll consolidate better if you study right before bed. And then in the morning will be the one day mark. That'll act as your second repetition. And then a few days after that, you'll review the material again. If it's an Anki or a similar flashcard deck with an algorithm, you can set it to do approximately this spacing. So it'll come back up in a few days. And that's very important because you want to make sure that you're not reviewing it too many times too soon, that you start developing that recognition. You want to start forgetting it a little bit before having the next review. And then 11311, so the next one, we have an hour, we have the next day, we have a couple of days later, then at about a week mark, and then at about, at about a month mark, we're going to do another one. And after that, it can be spaced out however you want, every three months, six months, a year. But those first couple, I'd recommend at least five repetitions for most material. If it's really, really easy, you can get away with three or four, probably. If it's really hard, you might need more. If it's really, really hard, and after like the third or fourth one, you're still just not remembering it, definitely recommend adding some sort of visual marker, some sort of mnemonic for it. Because after you do that and review that mnemonic two or three times, at least for me, it sticks so much better for so much longer. So I would follow a pattern like that throughout the week. And in total, I would estimate this would probably take four hours a day, maybe five if you're going through a lot of material or if you're really not familiar with certain material. But that's much better than how I was studying where I do passive studying for a half hour to an hour in the morning, go to class for about six, seven hours a day, come home and do some more passive studying for two or three hours. And then only once in a while would I actually really quiz myself. And even when I did quiz myself, I didn't really have a method in place, a process in place to make sure that I focused on that material more later on, that I knew where I was weak and also how to diagnose why I was weak. So it's a huge difference than how I did it. And understanding this theoretically from the way I'm explaining it is great, but understanding how to actually implement this in your studies might be difficult. And that is also why we created the MedEdge method, which is kind of a, a way to monitor all of your progress and your failures and know what types of errors you're making and how to correct them. So that's in the book. Read this before medical school if anyone wants to check it out. But even if you don't, you can download our free PDF, which has a lot of the information in it at freemeded.org slash medstudents or shoot me a message or an email and I'll try to explain what I can too. Okay, so just to summarize, that what you do first is watch a lot of videos to sort of gain the understanding of whatever topic you have to do that day. Then after the video, you try to solve questions on the concepts you have studied. Then if you get a question wrong, you'd add that question to a flashcard and then try to consolidate it that way. But if the flashcard, you still have problems remembering it through the flashcards, then you would develop some sort of visual marker. Yeah, that's a good summation. I did go over way too much there. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for the summation. And not forgetting that you probably want to do some sort of, well, at least I recommend for me doing some sort of first repetition in the morning of whatever flashcards you've already created previously, just because my mind is, works pretty good in the morning and I don't usually want to get out of bed first thing in the morning anyway. So I'll just kind of lay there and go over some questions before I start getting ready for the day. Okay, so you mentioned a few techniques. I think what we could do is link episodes where these techniques were discussed in the show notes to people who might not have listened to all the episodes could then have a short way to rent and get more information on these techniques. Speaking about Definitely. We should do that and also recommend listening to 
any of the recent recap episodes because yes. they summarize a lot of the material from the 2019 interviews as well. Okay. One of the techniques that I think I remember the guests saying it was like using the technique in school is like bringing a gun to a knife fight. Is there a place in your study system for memory palace? There are um, an almost infinite number of ways that you can implement a memory palace. And it is a simple procedure, but it's difficult to explain. I know it was difficult for me when I started learning, and I've tried in multiple episodes so far, and it's still one of the most common questions I get from listeners of this show. I would say there's also a video on our YouTube channel that explains this a little bit better because I have some graphics in there and kind of depict it out better than maybe listening to this audio would be. So if you go to youtube.com slash freemedhead on there, look for, or if you, maybe if you search for it, it'll be in the show notes as well for memory palaces for medical students or memory palaces in medicine. And that will explain in much better detail because the graphic representations that go along with it. But in general, you need to know what material you're going to cover. You can plan this out ahead of time or some people that are really fast at making these just kind of create them as they come across new material. And you place them in different spots throughout your palace, which is generally a house or a building or even an outdoor environment that you're very familiar with, that use our houses that we're currently sitting in or living in as an example. Then all the topics that you cover, whether this be from a podcast or a video, I actually really recommend these for passive methods of learning because this will act as one of the stronger memory techniques that you can use to utilize passive learning and remember it for the long term. But change all of the topics that you're interested in or the interesting facts that you really think are going to be important to remember later on, you make them into associations, some sort of visual marker. These visual markers are going to be wacky caricatures or creations of your own device. And once you get used to making these types of visual markers, and I could go into several episodes and in fact have on how to do this, (laughs) then you would place these visuals into your memory palace, you can pick a different room, you can pick different furniture, light fixtures, wall fixtures within this room, which is your macro station within the palace. And then you set the image somewhere on a micro station, such as your bed or the nightstand or the light switch or the ceiling fan. And there are a couple of other videos out there from Mullen Memory. And I think they did one in collaboration with Osmosis as well. Those are different types of memory palace concepts that you can use, but really it's infinite. And the hardest thing students seem to come across is just where to start. And then when they hit roadblocks, where to go. And that's something that, you know, you can read a lot of material on, you can listen to a lot of material on until you actually take the time to practice yourself or get a mentor to really push you along and help you overcome the obstacles you're running into. It's difficult to overcome. It's difficult to move on to the next step especially when you're already so weighed down with all the material you have to cover in medical school. But I do still recommend exploring it. I do still recommend using it because it will help if you use it properly. Definitely. It's a very difficult technique to implement. I feel like I still have problems. I don't think I've been able to implement it yet because I'm not very good remembering places. So I end up forgetting the rooms I used and things. I just gave up on it eventually. But regardless, I feel like it's, <laughs> regardless, I feel like it's it's actually a very good because I've seen it's a very good technique because I've seen evidence of people using it to do awesome stuff. It's it's definitely worth a shot. 
So aside these four processes, are there any other things you would have implemented in your medical school um, study routine? I th- not so much for the study material. I, I would say knowing the proper and more effective study methods and memory methods are just key. Uh, there's so much material you have to cover in grad school and medical school, especially. Once you have those down, I mean, it's going to be a learning curve. It's kind of like learning a new language. But once you have it down, once you're able to really notice when you're making mistakes and curb your current processes and practices to a more effective method, you're going to save so much time in the long run that, I mean, I wouldn't add too much or get into too much complexity. There's always more that you can try out, but just have the basics down, know what to use, try to figure out how to implement them in your individual studies. And then you're going to have more time for free time, for leisure time or time with friends and family or you know, time to learn something that's non-medical if you aren't completely burnt out from learning for the day. <laughs> that's very true. I think what I've noticed from this is, so I was actually expecting like a more elaborate schedule with more detailed techniques, like more advanced techniques. So what this just shows me is, is actually you don't really need the super advanced techniques to implement advanced learning techniques to sort of make your medical school learning or your medical school career easier. The basics are all you need, just a video, some questions back there to help with your recall a little flashcards to help with your speech repetition and a visual markers to sort of nail down the difficult points. And that's all you need to actually succeed in medical school. So it's actually good. It's an issue of quality over quantity. You don't need a lot of tools. You just need the right ones and using them properly. Exactly. These techniques would have run down your studying time from two hours to two hours. That's actually, that's like a, a, third, a third of the time you were using at first. That's actually a lot. So what would you have done with all this free time? Yeah, I think especially, and this is going to change during like a dedicated USMLE step prep time or something like that. But for the average day, the average week, it would have most likely lightened my load by at least one, if not three or four hours a day. It's going to go up and down depending on which classes you have at the time and your familiarity with them. Some topics are more difficult for certain students. So don't even try to use something similar to my guesstimates, but find out yours might be a lot more. But basically, what I would have used with this extra time is, like I said, a lot more free time, time with family or friends. Not that I had family on the island, but you know, maybe just making more phone calls or something like that. If I had more internet on the island, more stable internet, I probably would have learned how to use Skype a lot sooner. Um, <laughs> then probably I had some of my knowledge now, then I'd also have some of my ambitions for creating this content. Maybe I would have been able to start the blog sooner or the podcast sooner, written a book sooner. There's all these extra non-medical skills, the audio editing, the video editing, the scheduling, the different software, different processes that all require a little bit of experience and a learning curve. And maybe I could have implemented some of these sooner. Maybe I could have started on this you know, organization and building this organization to bring you better information and better medical study advice sooner had I known about these earlier on and had I had more free time to, you know, maybe do some research and see what else is out there. Maybe I would have been inspired sooner instead of always feeling like I just barely was keeping my head above water, you know? That's actually very true. I feel like this would provide a lot of value for our listeners. Hopefully they can build off of this and then develop their own study techniques, efficient study techniques that help them not only 
study the material better, but also save them a lot of time and then prevent them from getting stressed out about the amount of information they are supposed to study. And hopefully we can make medical school fun again. Hey, that can be our campaign slogan. <laughs> medical school <laughs> fun again. <laughs> I like it. I don't know that it was ever fun, but you know, maybe if we take away the again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, this has been very interesting. I hope there's a lot of value here for the listeners. And I want to thank you, Sharif, so much for all the work you've put in, all the help you've been giving me so far for conducting this interview. Hopefully you'll do some more in the future. And anyone else that's listening that wants to join the team, you know, we've got plenty to do, plenty of fun things to learn. Looks good on your CV. 